Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to share what works to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine and, like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. The world of reading has certainly changed over the past couple of decades. Lots of options for how we get access to what writers are writing. But the process of writing still involves the hard work of centering, producing, revising, and more revising. Underlying it all is the force of inspiration, wanting to come into the light. And in this morning's uh, pre-recorded radio conversation, we're happy to have some young writers with us from the Sumner Pathways program. Welcome to Carol Dawn, Justin Holland, and Abby Elizabeth Holland. Thanks for being with us. Yes, thank thank you. you. Thank you. And we also have some folks who have been helping them with the writing process. Susan Walsh is a Sumner Pathways program teacher, and Cynthia Thayer is the author of Strong for Potatoes, A Certain Slant of Light, and A Brief Lunacy. Um, <laughs> she's also the director of, or the founder of Scudic Arts for All, and I'm glad to have her welcoming them back to Talk of the Towns. Let's hear a little bit um, about from each of you about uh, what, wh- how you got started. Um, uh, Carol, can we start with you? Just tell us a little bit about how you got started with writing. Well, I got started with writing a long, long time ago because it was definitely my outlet to a lot of problems I had in my life. So that's pretty much in you my You can't be that long because you're a young woman. So 10 <laughs> years, 15 years maybe? I, about that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> How about you, Justin? How did you get started? Well, I've been making up stories in my head for as long as I can remember. Mm. There's never been a time in my life where my mind hasn't been working on the ideas of creating stories and characters. But I started actually writing, like physically typing, about seven years ago. I wrote or tried to write my first novel. I got about 20 pages in. Great. Good for you. That's more than I've done. Um, And Abby, tell us a little bit about how you got started in, in thinking about writing. Well, when I first um, started writing, my mom used to get me, like, these little blank golden books. Uh-huh. Um, the cover was blank, and all the pages were blank, and um, what I would do is, like, write my own little, like, rhymes and stuff. I was seven years old with my first one, and then I just kind of grew from there and started writing bigger stories, and now I'm, you know, now I'm working on a novel and several children's books. So. Great. Well, we're going to hear from that in a little bit. Um, now to, to uh, Susan Walsh. Susan, tell us a little bit about the Alternative Pathways program at Sumner and, and how it got started. Okay, thank you very much. Um, Sumner has had a variety of different pathways um, through the years. We currently have the liberal arts pathway, and two and a half years ago we started the alternative pathways program. It was really implemented for students who were being disenfranchised from high school, um, and at that time we had an unfortunate um, dropout rate of about 24 percent. But since the last 18 months, um, that number has dropped down to 7%. Mm. We're still not satisfied. We're hoping that becomes a zero number, mm-hmm. which is, of course, what education 
education is supposed to be about. Um, in alternative pathways, um, we primarily um, meet the students where they are, and um, let's just start with that. Um, and the we offer a more hands-on experience. Um, some students want to graduate early. Some, frankly, need to graduate early. Um, as you know, our our location um, there are a lot of children who just really need to go to work mm -hmm. so we offer opportunities that children can attend school and work um, and have a flexible schedule if needed but we also try very hard uh, for as many students who want to if they need transition time for internships if they need transition time to take some either online or um, uh, courses to see if they want to practice going to college mm -hmm. um, with our support and we use try to use part of the senior year as a transition year and so far it's been very successful we hope to expand our program for next year mm. and Sumner is is located east of Ellsworth tell us a little bit about the the towns and the economy that you're you're in well as most of your listeners probably know we had a consolidation and then we had a deconsolidation so this <laughs> is and this is our first year of being the um, high school again for uh, five neighboring elementary schools they're all k-to-eights that feed into us we have usually about 240 to 260 students in the high school um, very diverse uh, population in um, what their needs and um, what their interests are but again we're a very poor rural school um, one of the numbers that pops up um, recently is that um, we would have probably 91% of our students would qualify for free and reduced lunch. Mm -hmm. That's a staggering number. Mm. Um, but we do try to um, accommodate what everyone's needs are. Um, I think that through all the pathways and frankly through all of the extremely good care and um, um, investment that the teachers and faculty administration have for the students at Sumner, I think we do a really good job. I think students have um, a lot of different opportunities that they might not have in a larger school, and frankly, I'm very proud to say that it's a little gem of a high school. Oh, it is. It is a gem. And uh, Cynthia Thayer, tell us a little bit about your own background um, as a as a, a farmer, <laughs> as a creative person, and, and then how you got connected to the Pathways program. Well, I've only been writing since I was about 50, <laughs> so uh -huh. I was kind of a late starter. I did other things before that. I was a teacher in high school, and I was a professional weaver, um, and I sort of fell into the writing and was very successful, um, much to my surprise, <laughs> and I published three novels. And I've always been a teacher uh, for, well, since I was a teenager, really, and I teach workshops and uh, writing classes and spinning classes and whatever happens to come my way. And Susan called me last fall and asked if I might be interested in working with three exceptional writers mm. at Sumner. And I thought, oh, I'm not so sure. And I went in and, and met her and listened to what she had to say, and I was really quite excited. Mm. So uh, that's how I initially got contact uh, with these kids. And then it kind of turned into a 4-H spin mentorship which was interesting, uh, and that means that these three guys are going to be mentoring other students on Thursday at the Pam Harmon Art Day. Mm. And so they are going to, in turn, teach other students what they've learned in, in the workshops. So I did, uh, I guess it was the third semester. Uh, we, I came every week for three hours and worked with these students. And when I realized how advanced they were, a, a lot of the ideas that I had originally come up with changed. Uh -huh. And it wasn't just like working with a group of high school students, which I've done very often. These kids were writers. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And so we we did uh, lots of we did workshopping techniques, mm-hmm. which I do with uh, adults usually, mm-hmm. and they responded and and uh, I was quite amazed at how far they they had come already. Well, let's get right to it. All we're right, we're going to have these folks share their writing with us, um, and uh, we'll ask each of them to, to kind of set up the the scene or the or the situation so that our listeners will kind of understand where they're starting, and then we'll just ask them to to uh, go ahead. So we're going to start with Carol Dawn. Carol, go ahead. Okay. Well, mine's pretty easy to set up because it is the first chapter of the novel, and this is actually the novel, the first thing I ever started with, too. So. It's definitely a good thing with my writing. <laughs> Do we have a name for, for the novel yet? Uh, it's Breaking Free. Breaking Free. And uh, that kind of ties in later in the novel. It, it, it doesn't really come up first thing. But this is the first chapter of that. Um, I decided not to go with a prologue on this one. So this is where it starts. Great. Okay. And I'll start now. Underneath the moonlight, the woman who stood in front of me barely looked alive, covered in strawberry gashes, her arms dripped with fresh blood, bruises were beginning to form all over her, but she wasn't fazed by this fact. Dried blood caused her once ashy blonde hair to cling to her empty face. It was hard for me to believe that this woman was just my reflection. What scared me more was the fact that I can't remember a time when this woman looked familiar. Raising my hand, I pounded hard on the crystal-clear front door of Kaldasha's Abbott's home. The action of doing so made my head spin. The pain I was in felt unreal. I waited, hoping Kaldasha would answer the door, but knowing who wouldn't. I lifted my arm again and once more pounded on the door, leaving another bloody mark. I grounded my teeth together as I brought my arm back to my side. The stinging pain was nothing worse than I had felt before, but it still drove me to the edge of insanity. It's open, Kalasher finally responded. His voice was faint, and I had a good idea of what he was doing. I debated knocking again, but I knew Kalasher would just respond again with, it's open, except more aggravated. I was instantly met by a wave of warmth when I opened the door. It felt wonderful on my cold, wet skin. Kalasher always keeps his home warm. He can't stand the cold. I walked through the brightly lit main hallway and into the massive main room. Kaldasha had his head stuck in his work, as I had expected. I went through hell and back to get these for you, Kaldasha. They better be worth it. I tossed the now blood-stained files I had stolen earlier tonight onto his desk. Marie, Kaldasha smirked. At my choice of words, you're in hell. I rolled my eyes. I'm going to go take a shower. I hope you don't mind. Quickly, I glanced outside Kaldasha's wide two-story picture window. From here, you could see the whole single-X space. It's an amazing sight. I smiled briefly and made my way up the stairs. It took all of my effort not to scream while ascending them. Marie, Kaldasha called. Why are there blood on these files? Call Arrow. I shouted back. There was no way I was explaining what happened at this moment. Grabbing black towels and a shirt from Kaldasha's closet, I made my way to the master bathroom. After starting the water, I turned around to the mirror. My shirt was soaked in blood and completely destroyed. I had to peel it off of my body. Fumbling around on the shelves, I found a set of tweezers and something to bite on. I began to pull the bullets out of my torso. By this point, my body had become numb to the pain. At the end of it all, seven bullets came out of my chest and another five from my arms. 
Next came that alcohol. Stupidly, I removed the washcloth I had been on before. I poured the alcohol in my wounds. It burned. I let myself fall to the ground as the stinging pain began to subside. My breathing was heavy, and I was reluctant to do the whole process again on my legs. I barely managed to get up. Once more, I grabbed the tweezers, something to bite on, and the alcohol. I stepped into the shower. The warm water hurt, but at the same time, it felt perfect on my strained muscles. I stood under the constant stream of steaming water for a couple of minutes before I sat down and leaned my back against the stone wall of the shower. I began removing the bullets from my upper thigh. To my relief, there weren't as many as I thought there would be. Once I decided... Once done, I decided to wait on pouring the alcohol. I didn't feel like dealing with any more mind-shattering pain. My night was already full of it. Tonight was supposed to be simple. My pack and I were sent to retrieve files and burn the buildings drawing them to ash, not participate in another battle in the war between Single X and H25. As the Alpha Pack, we're trained to deal with complications better than any other, but that doesn't mean we're always prepared to do it. Tonight was a prime example of that. The intensity of the attack was unexpected. H25 had time to plan, and somehow they knew we were going to be there. Whatever was on those files, they didn't want us to know. Stepping out of the bathroom, I heard Kaldasha begin to speak. I couldn't quite make out exactly what he was saying, but I didn't really care about that. I cared more for the identity of who he was speaking to. I listened as Kaldasha's voice slowly began to rise. What were they talking about that caused Kaldash to speak with such rage? Silence took over the room. I waited for the mystery person to be again speaking, but he never did. Minutes ticked by, and still nothing. I debated I had my chances of peeking over the rails of the balcony, but I knew Kaldasha would hear me, so I waited. Marie, a familiar voice called. I know you're listening. I suggest you come down here. You might hear better, darling. I dashed up. I shot up and dashed over to the balcony. Daddy, why are you here? Almost the same reason you are. What do you mean? I looked over at Kaldasha as I descended the stairs into the main room, hoping he'd be able to clue me in on what my father meant. The files have some alarming traits to them, Kaldasha said. My father looked toward Kaldasha with a menacing glare. I'd say it's a little more than alarming, Kaldasha. The tension in the room began to rise. Kalesha stood and turned to stare at the single X base. Running his hands through his long black hair, my father's dull gray eyes filled with impatience. I looked at my father. What's so alarming about them? Kalesha, would you mind showing Marie? Kalesha didn't say a word. He just tossed the files into my arms. I flipped through them. Through the blood, I was able to make out what was definitely more than alarming. They were all of my evaluation papers, starting with the ones taken right after Luke's disappearance from Single X. I fell onto the couch to think through what this meant. My father was right. It was definitely more than alarming. There are only two teams who have access to these, and none of the Alphas could be responsible for this kind of betrayal. The assassins have a traitor among them. Are you sure about that? My father spoke, his words full of concern. Clips, Marie's right. This is not the action of an alpha. They would not betray their pack, Kalasha said as he moved to lean on the front of his desk. Their family. Now, the assassins? They're another story. They're constantly trying to one-up each other. They've been trying to take, take the alpha's spot as the top pack for years, Daddy. 
the only reason they don't issue a challenge is because they know we'd win and do everything we could to embarrass them in front of the rest. Okay. Obviously stressed, my father shut his eyes. Maybe I should start spending more time around the base. <laughs> no offense, but if the packs see you, they're going to know something's up. The rule of the underworld doesn't come around for just anything, I reminded my father. I mean, when they see Kalbasha, they get suspicious. What do we do then? Kalbasha said, as both my father and him looked towards me. I waited to speak. Honestly, I had no clue what to do. We couldn't just interview them. I sighed. My life had just become more complicated. I'll talk it over with Arrow and the rest of them and see if they have any ideas. Marie, my father said as he came to sit by me, if possible, I'd like to keep this between us. I glared at my father. They're my pack. I'm telling them. I know you're concerned, but you know them all. We're the oldest pack in single X, and the only one that isn't an original member is me. You can trust them. Luke was an original. My father looked me right in the eyes. I shouldn't have trusted him. That's different. He's a... I didn't know what to say next. Luke's a traitor. My father finished my sentence. And you trusted him the most out of anyone. Marie, all I'm asking is for you to approach this situation with caution. And I will. I said, turning around to look at Kalasha. Maybe we should all talk to the team if you're that worried, Clips. Kalasha spoke up. I guarantee you it's a waste of our time, though. And that's it. <laughs> That's wonderful. That's Carol Dawn um, from Sumner uh, Pathways Program reading first chapter from her novel Breaking Free. Um, so you're you've invented a world. Um, totally. <laughs> and this is set in the future. Uh, I'd say it's probably set more in modern day. Modern day, but um, a, a, a different world than the one we're living in. Right yeah, now. it would be the underworld. Uh, they're just in a different realm currently in that period. They do. Uh, come to Earth and other realms as well. Uh-huh. And so if, if I were to ask you what influenced you to, to start on this novel, talk a little bit about some of the things that, that uh, show up. Well, Marie was me as a child, and all the other characters you see were, I'd guess you'd have to call them imaginary friends, and a lot of the stuff that rooted it were a lot of the movies and stuff I watched. Um, one of the movies that actually rooted a lot of it was the underworld movie that i totally shouldn't have been watching at like seven years old because <laughs> you know but that was definitely one of the roots of it and it was just something i acted out as a child and i started writing it down as a child as well this is something i've been working on since i started writing like uh -huh. 12 years ago uh-huh and um the the uh, notion of the of the there's a father and a daughter mm -hmm. and and the the other character what what role does the other character i can't pr pronounce his name kaldasha yeah what role does he um, play he is pretty much the not the ceo but the kind of co-leader of single x and single x would be the number one most dangerous i guess for lack of better words you'd call them a gang uh in the world but no one knows about them. Mm. And that's the way they like to keep it because they are, I'd have to say, superhuman abilities, but at the same time, they're not human. They're otherworldly creatures, pretty much. Um, Kaldasha is pretty much the devil himself. And um, later in it, you'll find out that Marie's mother um, is pretty much the ruler of the heavens. And so it's very much... 
strange in the fact that she has these two conflicting sides in her. It's an extreme battle of good and evil. So well, it seems seems like that that um, whether you know it or not, you're also uh, borrowing from the stories of the Greek gods and the Roman gods. Oh, and, totally. You know, so that 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 notion of of up and down and heaven and earth and and the underworld are all present in in all of our human stories. Yeah. And it's not just the heavens and the underworld. It's Zion, which would be nature, mm-hmm. and it's. The links, which is anything metal, anything electronic, anything internet, mm-hmm. anything like modern technology. And there's so many other realms and stuff. Honestly, in all of the books I have written and all the thoughts I have, in a, I, there's no way to put all of the realms and <laughs> stuff into it because that would just be way too many characters and way too many side plots. And I have them all, but they'll probably never all be put out. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I have backstories for every single one of my characters in my characters, there's H25, which is a team made up of Luke Pearson, who was originally an alpha on Single X, but he left, and now he's the leader of H25, which has himself, his brother Raiden, and his brother Michael, and then there's May and Lee, and Lee is actually Luke's wife, and that... <laughs> and it's that sounds like... That sounds like um, lots of themes there, too. There's a whole controversy in that, which I'm not going to get into because it has such a huge backstory. But it also joins into a controversy of why Luke and Marie have such a hatred for each other because they were together for 10 years. And um, Luke cheated on Marie and left her to, for Lee. And that leads into another controversy. And well, so many let's, let's let our listeners imagine some of those and <laughs> yeah. look forward to, to reading. Let's turn um, now. I'll just remind listeners that they're tuned to Talk of the Towns. We're having some conversations with young writers from um, the Sumner Pathways program here in the studio with us. You've just heard from Carol Don. Next up will be uh, uh, Justin Holland um, and then Abby um, Holland. Um, also in the studio, their um, writing uh, coach or teacher, Cynthia Thayer and Susan Walsh, who's part of the Somewhere Sumner Pathways program. Um, so, uh, J- Justin, a little bit about your story, or set it up for our listeners so that they have some context. Well, the scene, very simply, is one of our protagonists, whose name is Mordraft, is being chased through a forest at night by an assassin who is not entirely human. He's, he controls all the elements of darkness, the assassin does. So he's in a very dangerous situation. And this, is, this is not set in modern times. This is set at least back in the 1700s. Okay. Well, go ahead. That's okay. great. Thank you. Mordred could feel adrenaline pumping through his veins, jolting him into furious motion. He could hardly see a few feet in front of him in the, do- in the blackness. Yet he ran blindly into the woods and searched for somewhere to hide so he would not be seen from the road. He nearly tripped on several roots and rocks as he ran for his life, trying to keep his steps soft and his breathing low so he would not be heard. But the running and the gripping fear made his lungs gasp for precious oxygen. Mortar fell to the ground as he heard the pursuing horse grunt. It slowed to a stop just a short walk behind him. Mordrift would have cursed had he thought Samhain would not have heard him, but he must have seen Mordrift or heard him get off his horse. Either way, Samhain was taking the time to look and study the forest. 
Mordorf glanced back at the monster assassin as he sat upon the animal, the predatory eyes observing the trees in his direction from underneath the hood. Now Mordorf was almost thankful he had fallen. Had he not, he would not have been concealed by the short young ferns and, sm and small trees, and he surely not, would not have been detected if he wasn't already, and Samhain was merely toying with him. The horse snorted as Samhain dismounted. Samhain watched and heard his metal boots clank as dust rose from the ground where he landed. He held the reins of the horse in his tight grip. The animal was clearly too scared to dare to move. Mordrift watched from the underbrush as Samhain clenched his fist as the energy circulated around his hand, forming the black, twisted sword. Samhain released the reins, and the horse almost stumbled as it frantically tried to run to get back home. Mordorf turned back and saw an old oak tree. Half of the top of it had fallen over, yet it still lived, the dead leaves still hanging from the branches. The wind whistled through the eerie-looking tree. If he looked hard enough, he could almost swear that he saw some sort of grotesque monster face staring back at him from the knots and gross on the trunk. But right now, Mordrift would take the ghastly tree in front of him over the swift horror behind him. Mordrift tried to crawl as fast and as quietly as he could to get to the tree in hopes of hiding behind it. It wasn't an extremely effective strategy, nor was it very original, but as long as it would keep his head on his shoulders, that was all he wanted. Behind him, he heard the crunching of the dry, dead leaves on the ground that alarmed Mordrift of Samhain's approaching footsteps. He was coming into the woods with him. In fact, he was coming right up behind him. Mordrift's heart was racing and beating like a drum and pumping him full of terror. He had to move faster. But the faster he moved, the more noise he made. He tried to quietly clear his path of dry leaves with his arms before he attempted to crawl over them. But this did very little to reduce noise and was only wasting time before Samhain would walk through the bushes behind him. Suddenly, the crunching of the leaves behind him ceased. Mordorf trembled on the ground in fear as he turned his head to look around him for the cloaked death agent. Around him, he saw nothing until he looked up. Mordorf tried not to make any sound or even move. In fact, he ceased to even breathe as he stared up at the assassin from underneath the cover of the waist-high ferns. Samhain stood over him, showing no signs of detecting that he lay just barely two steps from his position as he scanned the shadows and the fog. Mordrift had his hand gripping the hilt of his saber, ready to draw and wield it any second, just to make one last stand if he had to. The ever-so-light layer of snow on the forest floor he laid on started to melt from his body heat, which dampened his clothes. It was so cold this night, or maybe it was fear that made him feel this way. <coughs> he almost shivered, but the slightest sound could alert Samhain, sealing his fate. As Mordorf stared up at him, there was a noise in his direction. So close, he almost thought it might have been himself. Samhain snapped his head around to look in the noise's direction. He was within an inch of looking directly at Mordrift now. Mordrift quickly played dead in case Samhain was to look just a bit further down. 
If he did, his only hope would be mistaken for something else entirely in the distorting darkness, or already dead. But knowing Samhain the way he did, it was safe to assume he would probably give him a few extra stabs just to make sure. Mordor saw his eyes under the concealing shadow of the hood as his gaze narrowed upon the bush behind him. Samhain began to move slowly toward the bush. Mordor knew that if he came any closer, he would be found and there was no way around that. He closed his eyes as he willed himself to work past his fear and begin to draw his sword from its sheath, preparing to take a stab at him from underneath and possibly get a strike in. As the razor tip of Samhain's blade seemed to hover right over the side of Mordor's face, his muscles tensed as he took a deep, silent breath. Just as he was about to explode into emotion, a wolf pack started to howl not far from their position. The sound almost gave him a start, but Mordor managed to keep himself composed. However, the wild hare hiding in the bushes behind him could not. It rustled the dead leaves on the ground and snapped several dried twigs as it abandoned its cover for fear of being found out, much like Mordrift, hiding in the bushes from a much larger threat. Samhain produced his wrist bow, ready to fire the dart at the hare at a moment's notice. Fortunately for the animal, however, the assassin withheld its fire long enough to seem to recognize the small shape. The hare hopped out of sight and into the fog, most likely right into the pre hungry predator's mouths. Mordor released a low, shaking breath as he slowly turned his head to look up at Samhain, half expecting him to be glowering into his eyes. The space the monstrous man had stood just a moment before was empty, and Mordor didn't know what was more disturbing, what he had expected or the reality he was faced with. He looked around him through the dense underbrush. The forest was deathly quiet, like a graveyard. Even the sounds of the animals and the wind whistling through the trees had ceased. The only sounds to reach his ears were those of the pounding heart in his chest and his lungs gasping for air. Mordrift gazed up into the tree before him at a dark figure sitting on a twisted branch in the pale moonlight. The shadow turned its head all the way around to look at him, its eyes flashing orange in the darkness. For a short moment, he was almost frightened by the creature, until he recognized it as a large bird of the night, an owl. The raptor stared at him for a moment longer, and Mordor began to worry that with Samhain still close by, he may be watching what the bird was looking at. Mordor looked around to check for the assassin. He heard a crackling noise come from behind him. The owl swooped off the branch and silently flew over him. Mere seconds later, he heard the distinct sound of a dying rabbit, caught in the clutches of its doom. Mordor crawled as quietly as he could to the tree, all the while searching for any sight or sound of Samhain. Finally, he reached his destination. He stood with his back against the tree as he attempted to brush his wet, dirty clothes, but instead, he only managed to further soil his hands and make them colder. He took several breaths, as all he could do was hope that the terror was done and the hunter had been misled. Mordor listened intently to the sounds of the forest, to the sound of darkness, of silence. As he tuned into his surroundings, he heard a twig snap almost inaudibly from behind the tree. 
His heart almost stopped as the sound jerked all his muscles into tension. He stood even closer against the tree, clinging it to like a child would to its mother. He knew he, he could not stop the quivering any longer as he dared to peek around the trunk of the oak. There, distorted in the fog, with the shadow of Samhain as he stared off into the distance, swaying slightly as he shifted his weight, obviously looking elsewhere for him, or maybe listening intently for him. Mordrift watched for a short moment longer, despite his better judgment, despite the voice in his head telling him to get back behind the tree. Samhain snapped his head to look at Mordrift, his eyes flashing as they peered beneath the hood. Mordrift gasped as he backed behind the tree. Surprised, his heart hadn't stopped beating yet for all the peril it had endured this night. Mordrift, for all the battles he had fought, all the fearful nights he had stayed his watch, even for the battle-hardened fearlessness he displayed, he nearly broke down into a crying, trembling wreck the moment he heard the deep, hair-raising sound of Samhain's rasping breath just behind the tree. It was the most horrifying thing he had heard in his entire existence, for he knew it would be the sound of his death. And that's it. <laughs> Wonderful. This was a, a reading from uh, Justin um, Alexander Holland's uh, novel, Shadow Road. Um, tell me a little bit more about Shadow Road. Where did, you, where did you get that? the inspiration for that? Well, actually, the title of it is actually, it's a three-part novel series that I've, I've obviously yet to write, but um, it's the first part in that is Men in Magic Shattered Kingdom is the book. The title is of the chapter is uh -huh. Shadow Road. Okay, of oh, Shadow Road. But okay. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I just wanted to clarify that. But Thank you. Um, now, the, the inspiration for it, I think a lot came from the idea of elementals. And if then there's two characters in particular in this which can harness elemental power. Mm. And of course, Samhain is darkness and the night and stuff and um, but no, it came from a lot of that idea. Some of it was inspired by Norse mythology. Um, I think a lot of like what Carol said, like the movies that we watch is stuff that really inspired me a lot too. Surprisingly, and I know some people are going to laugh at this, but the movie Frozen actually, it was a Disney movie. And it actually inspired this a little bit. And you wouldn't think that from reading that piece. But other movies, like those The Last of the Mohegans, that. So that helped. notion of being in the woods, is that something you've put yourself into as well? Um, yeah. I, could, I could really feel myself in, yeah, in your yeah, scene. Yeah. I, I actually play out scenes uh -huh. from both perspectives. Right, right. So I, I grew up in the woods, so... I naturally was out in the woods a lot, so I know what it's like to be out in the woods when it's dark and stuff, and things get distorted so much yes. in the darkness, and it's so frightening. So yes, yes. Really trying to write a frightening scene, that's just automatically what your mind goes to, right. is being out in the woods alone, hunter behind you, 
and just nothingness in front of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll come back to you and learn a little bit more about some, some of your writing uh, techniques and how you approach your writing in just a moment. Uh, you're tuned to Talk of the Towns. We're hearing from some young writers from the Sumner Pathways uh, program um, down in the Sumner High School. Um, you've just heard from uh, Justin Alexander Holland, and you've heard earlier from Carol Don, and now we're going to hear from Abby Elizabeth Holland. Um, Abby, um, your novel is a magical realism novel. Set that up for us. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, what what it really is is it's like, because um, I like have like two protagonists, and I kind of try and balance them out a bit, but it like intertwines with like um, destiny a lot. And um, even between, like, two different time periods and a lot of stuff like that. So this notion of, of there's magic, but you're also, um, that the, the different time frames, mm-hmm. that's the magic part. Yeah. But the realism part seems to me in the chapter that you're going to read, the piece you're going to read, mm-hmm. is these are real people. Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so uh, tell us a little bit about the scene that you're going to set up or the characters. Well, this is... Um, this is a family, and the um, you're seeing it through the eyes of um, one of my protagonists from later on in the book, and um, uh, he's older later on in the book, but right here he's only eight. But it's set up in a uh, fictional town called Carnelly in County Ireland, in County Limerick, Ireland, and uh, it's in way back in like 1700s okay. sometime. Okay. Okay. So anyway, go ahead. Here we go. The foal's soft muzzle nestled into eight-year-old Tam O'Finn's hand. Its hot breath blew through his fingers with careful analysis in its eyes. At some unseen cue, the ho- young horse suddenly bounded off towards its mother, kicking and leaping in the air. Its sire's white feathering dancing like snow around its ankles. The mother horse nuzzled her baby with pride. Prince Donovan, Sir Donovan, Tam said leaning against the fence, attempting to decide upon the foal's name. Sir Donovan should be his name. Sir Donovan? asked Da. The dark warrior? Honestly, Tamas, I don't know what to do with ye, for I, I've never seen such a skittish foal. As if to prove the man's point, Sir Donovan sniffed a butterfly that had landed on a flower. When it moved, fluttering its wings and hovering for a moment, Sir Donovan leaped straight into the air and scattered back to the old horse's side for safety. There it is, said Da, scared of but a wee butterfly. But Da, Tam said, staring at the foal, his color is the darkest brown of any horse. He will grow into it, he will. He has great nobility. I know it. Ah, the colt may only be acting this way because a storm is brewing. Tam turned around to see his ma leaning in the doorway of their white-stained cottage, showing that impish grin she always held when flirting with his Da. Da returned her grin as always. If the boy says the colt is noble, it must be so. Sir Donovan it is. His voice went sober and he added, I'd be going to the village to find a piglet. Do you want to be coming with me? Ma swiveled her head behind her, towards the inside of the cottage. She then turned back to face them. I must not. I've just begun boiling the potatoes and... Moira suddenly sprinted past Ma, her thick hair flowing behind her like a royal black banner. Wait for me, Uncle Ellig. I want to come with ye. The road to the village was fairly short if traveled by horse, but since they were walking, Tam found the road twice as long. 
Soon they reached the village where the townsfolk walked about the streets, while sheep were being led to pasture. Three English soldiers sat upon their horses. Da led them to a fair, far side of the village, where Mr. Hagardy was selling eight new piglets. Come, Tam, help me find the right piglet, Da said. Right piglet. They all looked alike to him, screaming and squealing, though the mother pig lay in the luxury of her mud. This was the first year his family would be raising a pig from scratch, and by the shit sound of their ear-shattering wails, Tam wasn't sure he wanted one at all. Why aren't you chasing after the pig, cousin? Moira whispered into his ear. She lowered her voice even more. Are ye afraid ye would fall first face into the mud? Pigs pulling your trousers down? And for certain, no one desires for that sight. Tam did laugh then at the picture it conjured in his mind. At that moment, Da and Mr. Agardi returned unrecognizable in mud, but with the pig in arms. The trio then decided to return back home, as the light was beginning to fade. I'd better be getting home to my wife, Da told Mr. Agardi, handing him the payment of coins for the animal. Helped and safety at ye. Aye, Mr. Agardi said, but I was wanting to show you the new fireplace I built. I only used the best stones I could find. You need to see me fine work before you leave, Mr. Agardi gestured to his cottage. Come, Illig. I must not, nor do I want to tonight. Far too late it is, Da replied. Me wife is expecting me home. I'll come see your fireplace in the morning. They walked back home the same way they came. By the time they returned to the cottage, it was nearly dusk. The warm fire glow shone through the windows, casting a silhouette of his ma working in the kitchen, along with Moira's mother. Moira's parents and his were quite close, and they were often seen at each other's cottages around mealtime. As they entered into the house, Tam saw Ma standing in the front of the stove with one hand on her hip and the other waving a wooden spoon in the air. She wore the same impish grin as when they left her, and she, he wondered if the, she held that same expression the whole time they were gone. You be late, she said, looking at Da. Not too late. Da put the piglet down, walking its way outside with his feet. It finally decided it was not going to escape and went to explore the rest of the house. After washing his face and hands that his mother deemed as filthy, Tam sat at their kitchen table, a steaming bowl of boiled potatoes set before him. After saying grace over the food, the adults began conversation about the new foal. A fine colt it is commented Aunt Sorla, Moira's mother. His color resembles old Riley, she turned to Ma. The wee gelding ye first rode when we first met ye. Ah, uh, but I have the feeling the Lanov will grow fair taller than old Riley. His sire was the magistrate's horse, Ma said. A tall horse indeed. The family often sp spoke of old Riley, and according to all, he was the gentlest horse in all of Carnelli. Ma had loved him as a family. He died nearly a year before Tam was born, and Tam often wished he could have met him. I would I had known old Riley, Tam stated, glancing from face to face around the table. Aye, but he's far gone, Tam, said his father, unless you would find a way to visit him back in the past. That is able to be done? Tam would not guess so, but the seriousness in Da's voice made him wonder. It is not, Tamus, Uncle Angus, sitting next to Aunt Sorla, continued to stab at the potatoes with a fork. It was then they heard the barn door slam, as it had often done of late. No one knew the cause of it, but Da suspected it was a sheep that found its way to unlock the hatch. But Moira had convinced both Tam and herself that it was actually a livestock raider waiting for the opportunity to obtain free sheep.
Don rose from his seat and sighed at the sound. Ah, to that cursed sheep. I will go see if it actually succeeded in opening the door again. Twould do me heart good to find the very creature causing the mischief. Tis not a sheep, Moira cried. Tis a raider. Dad dismissed Moira, donned his coat, and walked out to the door into the ever-darkening night. Several minutes passed before Uncle Angus and Aunt Sola prepared to leave for their own house. Come, Moira, Aunt Sola said softly. The night is already upon us. Both Ma and Tam were left in the cottage, sitting quietly by the warm fireside, the golden yellow light following upon their faces. Two white chickens huddled nearby them, obviously glad for the warmth. Where is Da? Tam asked, staring blankly into the flames. It had been quite a while since he had left, and he was usually back by this time. Ah, Tam, he must have had to fix the lock. Come and loose it was, likely clean broken off. Ma turned in her chair towards the front window, resting on the wall behind her. The night outside remained still. She looked back to the fireplace and huddled Tam closer. He will be back soon enough. Tam sat and waited longer in his mother's lap. He had near come to sleep when she moved, gently sliding him to the floor. Stay, she said, her voice near whispering, containing an urgency that startled him awake. I'm going to find your da. She walked quickly towards the door and took a candle that was sitting on the windowsill, carrying it outdoors with her. Tam followed quietly, making certain she could not hear him. Elig, called Ma, stepping into the barn. Answer me! Tam drew closer, and when he could bear the tension no longer, he walked straight up to her side. Where is Da? She looked at him as though she knew he was there the entire time. I do not know. Tam clasped her hand and held it against his face. Ma was quiet now, staring at a blanket draped over the ground in front of them, and her deathly stillness seemed to frighten Tam more. She raised her candle higher into the air, and Tam saw where there was a large form lying underneath. Ma suddenly sprinted forward, nearly throwing herself upon it. She pulled the blanket back with so much force the cloth screamed in the air with a sharp crack. It was a person, lying in the hay. A small handkerchief was draped over the body's face. The arms were crossed, resting upon its chest, as if ready for burial. It cannot be, Ma repeated to herself. It cannot be. Tam could only stand there, hushed and struck in horror. Something within him seemed to sink and rise at the same moment, but he could do not but stand and watch Ma slowly pull back the handkerchief to reveal the body's face. Mm, wonderful. Thank you so much. Abby Elizabeth Holland reading from her novel. Do you have a name for the novel at this point? Not yet, no. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, wonderful. And tell me a little bit about um, the, the kind of things that you're, you're trying to, to uh, draw together here. Well, mostly this chapter, mostly what this chapter does is um, set up the rest of the book and like just about everything in it is foreshadowing. Mm. And um, So we, we're going to learn more about these characters as time yes. goes on. Mm-hmm. And um, this, this notion of, of this family is there. Yes. And what's going to draw them forward? What's going <coughs> to pull them forward? This mystery of, of a possible death? Yes. Yeah. Because, um, as you know, there was a death, and um, there, there are some weird things that happen later on to my other <laughs> protagonist. And um, it kind of skips ahead until where, like, um, he's, like, in his teenage years. And um, my other character is a teenager, too. And 
they're set in two different times. So, and their destinies kind of intertwine, which is, you know, kind of cool things. So one's in the past and one is in modern times. Right. Right, wonderful, wonderful. So, um, in the in the few minutes we have left, um, tell us a little bit about the how you write. H- how do you? Um, all writers want to know these questions, or potential writers. Do you sit down by yourself? Um, do you write in your own room? Do you do you find spaces? Do you have notebooks? Tell us tell us a little bit about. Let's go back to to Carol Dawn. How do you how do you actually do the writing? I write by I literally I lock my door. And I will sit in a corner in my room. I won't sit in my bed. I'll sit with my bright pink clipboard and paper. Or I'll have one of my notebooks that have some clever saying on the front. I like nice blank pages with pages behind it. Mm Because I feel like if there's more, the bigger the stack, the more inspiration I have to write. Uh And um, my inspiration really comes from my mind. I'll be watching a TV show and... No matter what kind of a TV show it be, a kids' TV show, a horror TV show, I'll get some sort of an inspiration. And then I will literally act out my scenes before I write them down. And so if someone were to walk into my locked room and see me, I'd think some white coats would be coming for me. (laughs) (laughs) And Justin, you said you kind of act out your things, but um, how do you actually do the writing? what's, What's your process? Well, when I'm physically typing on the computer... Typically, I'm in my room. I was just usually pitch black, except for the computer. Mm. At most, I might have a little nightlight or something, or maybe like very dim light coming through the window. Something. I've, I've got three blankets mm-hmm. up mm-hmm. there that I tack up there. So I want that darkness. Yes. You want that yes. isolation. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I just. I more or less just close my door and just pray that nobody comes in. (laughs) Abby, how do you how do you actually do the writing yourself? Well, um how I usually write is um I I just kinda like um have my own little mental bubble I you know surround myself with. Um sometimes I do it like um sometimes I shut off my light too and you know only write with you know a little light and uh-huh. stuff and um but mostly what most of my inspiration comes from is listening to music uh-huh. i listen to a lot of music and a lot of my best ideas have just come from listening to instrumental stuff ah great great cynthia there um as a, as a writer yourself um what do you see in these these young writers what what um inspires you to to help continue helping well, I see a lot of enthusiasm. I see a big well of, of ideas and stories that have not even emerged yet. And I see how closely they listen to each other and to me when we talk about writing and what's important to address. Uh, they are excellent critics. Uh, we do a workshopping technique where one reads his or her work and the others comment on it in the third person. And that's often really difficult for high school kids and they are so quiet when their piece is being discussed that it's and they're listening Mm. and the next week they come back and they've made changes according to what people have said Mm. so that's what I see I see uh, real future writers Mm. um, Mm. emerging 
Great. And it's exciting. And, and uh, Susan Welch, um, as, the, as you think about these students and the others in the Pathways program, you, you mentioned that some students really need to learn with hands-on, and that's what it seems to be is happening here. Absolutely. Um, in this case, um, these three had this uh, in common, their writing bug, if you will, and have a great deal of expertise and talent and strategies that go with it. We were extremely fortunate to have Cynthia come to us and do the workshop with them so they could have just this focus for um, an eight to nine week period, which is really just such a gift that Cynthia gave us that time. And it let them just zero in on their talents and build on those strengths that they already had. Mm, great. And how about um, you as students? Um, you've probably experienced learning in a quote-unquote classroom and that this is different what, what's different about this type type of learning Justin and then we'll work around uh, the circle here um, well it's like stated it's very much more hands-on it's quieter mm. I love my quiet mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. but it it's a smaller group it's more hands-on quieter and it, it's just more immersive okay everything yep. is it's helped me a lot. It's probably the only reason why I'm still in high school because all of the chaos in normal school and everything, it's, it's just so much all of a sudden because I was homeschooled uh -huh. for most of my life and then all of a sudden being thrust into high school. Quite a change. Yeah, that, that, was, that was quite a change. I went right. through quite a culture shock I for bet. about a half a year there. Uh -huh. Then they took me in pathways at the beginning of this year Yep, well, we're just doing some hand signals. Oh. Say we've got five minutes left, but go right ahead, right ahead. So, so and, and, and how about you, Abby? What's, what's it different about this type of learning versus what you might find in a typical classroom? It's, for me, I feel so much more relaxed in that setting. Mm. It's so much more relaxing, and then I can focus on my work better mm -hmm. and do a better job at my work than I could if there's so much hustle and bustle mm -hmm. around me. Mm -hmm. What do you think you're learning besides writing? <laughs> in other words, what, what are the connections between what you're doing here and other learning that you might be involved in? Well, like right now, we're learning to do memoirs, uh -huh. which is really cool, too. And, um, of course, that that's a type of writing. Um, but I, I thought it was like... Um, it's almost like a mini biography thing, which I think yes. is really, yes. really cool. Yeah, and uh, Carol, uh, tell us a little bit about the, the experience you have in, in doing this kind of intensive writing versus what you might experience in, a, in another typical classroom. Well, unlike Abby and Justin, I've been in normal school every year except for this year. And um, in normal classrooms, I didn't have the opportunity to write. And I didn't stay focused. I have a very, very... My mind doesn't stay on one topic very well, and so instead of paying attention, I'd have a notebook and I'd look like I was taking notes, and in reality, I was either drawing or sketching, or most of the time I was writing. Sure. So now um, I'm focusing on, in my six to eight week periods, which is what we do in f intensive learning and stuff, I've been able to work on my novels and actually have that time in the morning to just sit down and write mm -hmm. and it's been such a good thing and I think it's such an amazing opportunity and mm. seems I, to me that you're given permission to do what really inspires you you're given to push to do what you want to do instead of doing something 
that doesn't pertain to what you're going to do in the future. Okay. So um, in, the, in the last kind of go-around, all of you, um, maybe starting with Cynthia, what are your hopes for this kind of work in the future? What, what do you hope? And just a, a short hope that you have. I would love to see everyone in the high school be able to take a three-hour session once a week and do something great mm -hmm. instead of this, you know, what is it, 40 minutes, 50 minutes, and then the bell rings and you're off to something else. Right. And I think that intensive three-hour slot is really wonderful. Susan? Susan? Yeah, thank you. We have um, discussed this um, in our school about uh, the Pathways programs that we have, and certainly my mission would be that, and my hope will be that the entire school will be a Pathways school. And mm -hmm. I don't think we're that far off. Right. I think that could happen within the next few years. Yep. So people are using their experience um, to, to learn. Absolutely. Connecting. Absolutely, and connecting the dots for students and giving them opportunities to find what they really, um, their strengths and weaknesses are. Great. Carol Don, what are your hopes for the future? My hopes for the future is that everyone gets to be this way because it's so much more effective, and I don't see why normal school exists <laughs> if it can be like this. <laughs> How about you, Abby? Abby, Elizabeth Holland, what are your hopes for the future? Well, I feel the same way. I feel like um, if a person is not happy with the way things normally go, they should always have the opportunity to and to um, reach out and um, have an opportunity like this. Um, and I... I I seriously hope it grows further. You know? And um, uh, last to um, uh, Justin Alexander Holland, what are your hopes for the future? I really hope that the Alternative Pathways program can get enough support and resources so that anyone that wants to come into Pathways and wants mm. to join mm. can have that choice so that, you know, it's not like well, we can only take a couple students and stuff so that they can have enough support to be able to take anyone that needs it or wants it. Right. So and it's not just writing that you might do in a Pathways yes. program. I know the, some of the fisheries pro folks are down in Stonington are, are working on different Pathways. So it's just great. Yes. Just great. And I would hope that all of you get to write more and publish and I'll get to read your novels and your stories. Thanks, Thanks so much. We've come to that time when I want to remind you that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us from 10 to 11 on the second Friday of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Coronach on a Balnane House Highland music recording. Thanks again so much to our guests in the, stu in the studio, uh, Susan Walsh of Sumner High School Pathways Program, Cynthia Thayer, an author in her own right and, her, and, the, and the coach for these um, young students and the students themselves in the Sumner Pathways Program, Carol Don, Justin Alexander Holland, and Abby Elizabeth Holland. Thanks to our underwriters. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our, this special pre-recorded program. And stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning. <laughs>